your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. And as we do, we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. If you have little kids, we're pre-K up through third grade. We can uh, join Sierra in the back for Children's Church. And if you are a parent and you're sending your kids to Children's Church, we very much want you to take them back. Uh, And so if you've not yet signed in, there's a little iPad in the entryway. You can go now. You can sign up. It's very quick. You'll be back by the time we begin the sermon. So we are working our way through the book of Galatians. Galatians is such a unique book. It's a very powerful book. It's a very direct book. It's a book that focuses on the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you read every section of the book of Galatians, you will see Paul's heart for Jesus. And the wonder that we are saved by grace through faith in him. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Galatians 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. Paul writes, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery... To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, pure, unadulterated, the gospel that gives us hope, the gospel that gives us zeal. Be near to us by your spirit as we study your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would... Give us great confidence in Jesus. Hear our prayer. We pray in his name. Amen. Here's a headline from Runner's World magazine, October 6, 2014. Man in running bubble rescued, attempting to run 1,033 miles on water. Here's the story from intrepid reporter Allison Wade. Some consider distant, distance runners to be extremists. And a headline out of Florida, of course, 
probably won't help matters. On Saturday morning, the U.S. Coast Guard rescued Reza Bellucci, 70 nautical miles from St. Augustine, after a failed attempt by Bellucci to run approximately 1,033 miles from Miami to Bermuda in a hydropod, a plastic bubble designed to make running on water possible. According to the Coast Guard, Bellucci embarked on his journey Tuesday, September 30th, and by Wednesday, the Coast Guard had received reports of a man in a hydro bubble asking for directions to Bermuda. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. Bellucci refused multiple requests from the Coast Guard that he abandon his mission. The Coast Guard continued to monitor his movement for four days until Bellucci activated his personal locating beacon on Saturday morning. Bellucci was rescued via helicopter. Bellucci was on the first leg of a planned trip around the Bermuda Triangle in a hydropod, which bears resemblance to a floating hamster wheel. The bubble has a metal frame uh, studded with soccer balls and is made of thin plastic. Bellucci's website reports that he planned to sleep in a hammock inside the hydropod between 6 and 9 a.m. when the ocean waters were the calmest. The bubble was stocked with water and energy bars, and he also planned to catch fish to eat along the way. My goal is to finish the trip, said Bellucci. It's like chasing a dream. Now, I should note as a postscript to this story that Bellucci tried to run to Bermuda three times. He failed three times and was rescued by the Coast Guard three times. Bellucci spent approximately $45,000 building his giant aquatic hamster wheel, and we, the beleaguered taxpayers of America, spent roughly $200,000 repeatedly scooping him out of the water. Here's the question. Was Reza Bellucci running in vain? Given the fact that he never made it to Bermuda, or frankly, anywhere close to Bermuda, was Bellucci just spinning his wheels? What about you? Are you just spinning your wheels? Are you running in vain? Do you have a purpose in life? Do you have a destination? Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Are you in Christ? Is Christ in you? Are you free or are you a slave? What about Paul? Was Paul running in vain? Well, according to a small group of Jewish Christians, Paul was running in vain. According to them, he was preaching a false gospel. The Jewish Christians were saying that these Gentiles who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ must be circumcised. These new Gentile Christians must adopt the practices and beliefs and customs and habits of the Jewish Christians in order to be saved. You can't just believe in Jesus. That's too easy. Anyone can do that. 
were they right? Was Paul preaching some form of easy believism? Was Paul preaching what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace? Was he preaching the same gospel that Jesus preached? In order to prove that he was preaching the same gospel that Jesus preached, in order to prove that he wasn't running in vain, in order to preserve the truth of the gospel, he traveled to Jerusalem to silence these critics once and for all. What we'll see as we look at this next section of Paul's testimony is that he was not running in vain. He was running with purpose and determination and focus because he wasn't running to nowhere. He was running towards God. He was running towards the God who speaks. He was running towards the God who saves. He was running towards the God who sets us free, the God who emboldens, the God who gives. This morning, I want us to ask one diagnostic question. One diagnostic question that will help us to know whether or not we're running in vain. One question that will help us get out of the giant aquatic hamster bubble and into the kingdom of God. Here's the question. Are you this morning running towards God? If you are running towards God, you are not running in vain. If you're running away from God, you are. If you're running towards God, you will find purpose and hope and joy and salvation that you've been looking for your entire life. According to Paul, Christians are not on an endless treadmill of legalism and moralism. We are not running toward a God who might accept us if we keep all the rules and regulations and check all the right boxes. We're running towards the arms of our Heavenly Father. We're running with the wind of the Spirit at our backs. We are running in the path of God's commandment where Jesus has set our hearts how do we do that? What does that look like? How do we know that we're running towards God, the real God? Let's take a closer look. Here's the big question. Are you running towards God? Is God the central focus of your life? Is your life all about him? Or are you the central focus of your life? Is your life all about you, your pre- your preferences and desires and goals separated from God? What is your only comfort in life and in death? What makes you happy? What gives you joy? What satisfies the deepest longings of your heart? Who or what do you love more than anything else in the world? To the Apostle Paul, the answer is God. Paul loved God more than anything else in the world. He had a personal relationship with God. For Paul, God wasn't an abstract idea, a concept, an idea, a a first mover. 
He wasn't even a religion. For Paul, God is the God who speaks. Verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. Now, we don't know exactly what Paul means when he says that he went up because of a revelation. Did God appear to Paul in a dream? Did God appear to to Paul in some sort of personal uh, manifestation like he did on the road to Damascus? A a theophany, a personal appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did, Did God appear to Paul in an audible voice? Did he hear the voice of God? Well, we don't know exactly what Paul experienced, but we do know that God spoke to Paul. And we also know that God still speaks to his people. To borrow a word from Francis Schaeffer, he is there and he is not silent. This week I was reading an article on the Gospel Coalition called When Muslims Dream of Jesus. The article says that as many as 25% of all Muslim converts to evangelical Christianity convert to evangelical Christianity because Jesus appeared to them in a dream. Here's a a story of one of those dreamers and the dream that he had. A Persian migrant arrived at a refugee center at 6 a.m. visibly upset. He told his story to a Persian pastor. During the night, he saw someone dressed in white raise his hand and say, stand up and follow me. The Persian man said, who are you? And the man in white replied, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the way to heaven. No one can come to the Father except through me. He began to ask the Persian pastor, who is he? What am I going to do? Why did he ask me to follow him? How shall I go? Tell me. In response, the Persian pastor held out his Bible and asked the man, have you seen this before? The man said no. He said, do you know what this is? Again, the man said no. The pastor then opened the Bible to the book of Revelation, where he read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The man began to cry and said, how can I accept him? How can I follow him? So the pastor led him in prayer and peace came over him. The pastor then gave the man a Bible and told him to hide it since the Muslims in the camps could cause him trouble. But the man replied, the Jesus that I met today is more powerful than the Muslims in the camps. He left and he returned an hour later with 10 more Persians. And he said, these men and women would like Bibles too. He didn't have a very sophisticated evangelistic strategy. But what he did have was the voice of God. Now, stories like this are so moving in part because they are so rare. 
it is very rare for Jesus to appear to people in dreams. Again, even among the Muslim converts, only 25% report having an experience like that. And though that is high, certainly the majority come to Christ in more ordinary ways. Though we may not have direct access to God through dreams, we have direct access to God through God's word. We have the scriptures. We have the Bible, which the Apostle Paul says is breathed out by God. And so when the scriptures speak, God speaks. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the scriptures are living and active. They are animated, if you will, by the Holy Spirit. When we read them in, with eyes of faith, and hearts that believe, they come alive to us. Have you ever had that experience? You're reading God's word, something that you might have read 10 times before, and it comes alive, and you see things that you've never seen before. That's God speaking to you. Jesus goes so far as to attribute every word of the Old Testament to the words of God. He'll quote Old Testament prophets, and he will say, Thus says the Lord, not the prophet himself. Thus says the Lord. But that's not all. God not only speaks in, in dreams, God only, not only speaks in the words of Scripture, he speaks to us in nature. In Romans 1 we read, For what can be known about God is plain to everyone, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. King David, a man after God's own heart, famously declared the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God is still speaking. The question is, do you hear his voice? Are you listening to the voice of God? I've been thinking a lot about this lately. I've been asking myself the question, am, am I merely reading the word, study the word, preach the word, or am I listening to the voice of God? For the last month or two, I've been reading the Bible every morning with the direct and purposeful intention of hearing God's voice. I've been praying that God would speak to me in his word, that he would show me my sin, that he would show me the wonders of his grace, that he would show me the wisdom of following after God. I've been reading books about Christian meditation and prayer. I've even been reading secular books about digital minimalism and turning down the volume of the world. And I've concluded, though this is still an ongoing process for me, that one of the reasons why I struggle to hear God's voice is that God's voice is simply one voice of many voices that fill my ears moment by moment, day after day. Day after day, I am surrounded by a cacophony of noise, information and communication through Facebook and Spotify and Signal and you name it weather updates and stock market updates. My phone is blinking and binging all day long. I don't even know how to turn it off. If you can help me turn it off, someone, a millennial, please help me turn it off. I'm so inundated by all of these things that I struggle to hear the voice of God. So 
right now and taking a, a social media sabbatical. Maybe all of us could do that. Maybe us. Maybe we could take a, a, a weekly technology digital Sabbath from all of our devices and things. I'm not suggesting new rules and new regulations, of course not. But I'm simply saying that God is speaking. We are not alone in the universe. We have the Bible, which is God's written word. We have Jesus, who is the incarnate word of God. We have nature. Some of us have dreams. Paul heard God's voice through you. Are you listening to the voice of God? That's not all. Not only does God speak, for Paul, God is a God who saves. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. For Paul, the most important question about his life, the most important question about his ministry is, am I getting the gospel right? Do people know that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus? Do people know that Jesus died on the cross in our place, that we might have everlasting life? Do people know that we cannot save ourselves, that the entirety of our hope is in the person and work of Jesus? Do people understand that it's not about being Jewish that it's not about the rules and the regulations, that it's not about our culture or our customs. It's about union with Christ. If you have your Bibles open, skip down to chapter 2, verse 20. Listen to this. It's amazing. The entirety of the gospel in one verse. Paul writes, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul could run towards God with confidence and joy, knowing that God would embrace him because of Jesus. Jesus saves. Jesus forgives. Jesus changes our lives. When Jesus died on the cross, as Pastor David reminded us earlier in the service, all of our sins, past, present, and future, were nailed to the cross. Our old selves, the people that we used to be, were nailed to the cross. We're new people now. Jesus says, you have been born again. God is a God who saves sinners, all sinners, big sinners and little sinners and notorious sinners and respectable sinners. No matter who you are or what you have done, there is grace to you through Jesus. Run to him and you'll never run in vain. But that's not all. God not only speaks, God not only saves, God liberates The gospel of Jesus Christ sets us free. Verse 3, but even Titus, who is with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because the false brothers secretly brought in, he slipped in to spy out our free 
freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us to slavery. Have you ever met a happy legalist? I haven't either. Legalists are always unhappy, and the reason that legalists are always unhappy is because they're not free. They're slaves to the law. They're slaves to performance. They're slaves to appearances. They're slaves to morality and propriety. But they do not know Jesus, and so they do not know freedom. And because they don't know freedom, they don't know joy. There are always more works to be done. There are always more boxes to check. Once you get on the legalism treadmill, it never ends. Just listen to the language Paul uses here. These legalists want to spy out our freedom. They're like little religious hall monitors. They've got, they've got the sash and a little ticket book, and they're walking around making sure that somebody's not having fun and enjoying themselves in Christ, forgetting that the gospel is good news. We don't respond to good news with frowns on our faces. We're happy because we've been saved. We've been liberated. Jesus sets us free. Legalists are cynical and judgmental. They hate the freedom that we have in Christ. And so they want to make us as miserable as they are by putting us back into chains. Don't let them do it. Don't give up the freedom that you have in Christ. Don't let legalism steal your freedom. Don't let works and morality and self-salvation, this Jesus plus gospel, which is no gospel at all, don't let that steal your joy. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? If you know Jesus, you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. Grace sets us free. There's a famous scene in Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables, where Jean Valjean, the main character, steals silverware from the local bishop, a Roman Catholic priest who's taken him in for the night. As Jean Valjean leaves the bishop's house under the cloak of darkness, the police stop him and accuse him of stealing silverware, which he did. It was right there. He's been caught red-handed. All the bishop needs to do is identify him, accuse him of theft, and he will go to prison. That's justice. That's exactly what Jean Valjean deserved. It's exactly what the policemen expected the bishop to do. That's not what happened. Here's what they didn't expect. Grace. God's grace intervened. In the story, the bishop not only denied that Jean Valjean had taken his silverware, he gave him the silverware. And then before he left, he said, Jean Valjean, I think you're forgetting something. And he goes to his mantle and he takes two silver candlesticks and he puts it in his bag and says, you'll need these as well. The pol- Jean Valjean is dumbfounded. <laughs> the police are completely confused. Nobody understands grace. And as he's leaving, the bishop leans in and whispers to Jean Valjean, 
Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of tradition, and I give it to God. You will know the truth. You will know Jesus. You will know the gospel of his unfathomably generous grace. And God will set you free. Religion will never set you free. Morality will never set you free. Money will never set you free. Marriage will never set you free. Jesus will set you free. God's grace is liberating grace. For Paul, God's grace is a grace that emboldens us. Verse 5, to them, the legalists, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, you have to understand the context of that statement. It's a very loaded statement. Remember, Paul was Jewish. Peter, Cephas, was Jewish. James was Jewish. John was Jewish. Barnabas was Jewish. The only person in the entire story who wasn't Jewish was Titus. Titus was a, or was a Gentile. He was Greek. Now, Paul could have very easily said, Titus, you need to become like one of us. You need to change. We're not changing things. This is our church. This is our religion. You Gentiles are the new people. And so you need to learn our jargon and our traditions and our customs. You need to become like us. Paul wouldn't do it. Instead, Paul took a stand against the many who opposed him. He was bold. He was courageous. He stood up to the false teachers. He faced down the mob. He wouldn't give an inch. He said, Titus does not need to be circumcised because we are not saved through circumcision. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. We will not add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we might wonder, oh, come on, Paul, why wouldn't you just why wouldn't you just compromise a little bit? Why not maybe say they don't need to be circumcised? That's kind of painful. So maybe we'll ha we can add a few things, maybe some different customs or things that they can do. Why be such a hardliner? Why would Paul be so bold in taking this stand? It's because when we add anything to the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. When we add works to our salvation, what we are saying is that we can be saved by our works apart from Jesus Christ. And later on, Paul will say in the letter of Galatians that once you embrace that idea, once you accept the premise that we can save ourselves, you are obligated to keep all of the law 100% perfectly from the moment of your birth until the day of your death because there's works and there's grace and the two of them cannot be mixed. If you add works to the gospel, it is no longer the gospel. God emboldened Paul. He had the courage to say, here I stand. The gospel and the gospel alone is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Jews like us, Gentiles like Titus, 
everyone who comes to faith. God shows no favoritism. Salvation is for every race and every people group. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. We live in a world where a lot of people lack courage. We live in a world where a lot of us are afraid of the mob. We're afraid to say what we really think. We're afraid to say what we really believe. We're afraid of our friends. We're afraid of our coworkers. We're afraid that people will disagree with us. And so we shrink away, fearing that we will be canceled or cast out, that we will lose our reputation or our place in society. We say, I better keep my opinions to myself. I better keep my faith to myself. I better put my light under a basket. I better believe what other people believe. I better say what everyone else says. It's hard to go against the grain. It's hard to stand alone. But God gives us courage. And in the moment of decision, when you are tempted to compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ, God will give you courage. He ha- the same spirit that is in you was in the Apostle Paul. We can expect just as much courage in you yield to the spirit and allow God to do his work. Take your stand with Jesus. Do not compromise the gospel. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. He is with you always, even until the end of the age. You are in Christ. And Christ is in you. Run to him. He'll never abandon you. Last thing. For Paul God is a God who gives. Verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Why is mercy so important? Why is generosity so important? Why is it so important that Christians give to the poor? Why, when the apostles were establishing the first century church, did they not only establish elders to care for the spiritual needs of the people, why did they also establish deacons? Why did Jesus say, I have come to preach good news to the poor? Why why does James, who is Jesus' brother, remind us that faith without works is dead? It's not real faith. Think about it like this. Grace is a river, not a pond. God's grace was never meant to flow to us without flowing through us. As Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. Because God is a God who gives, what do we have that we have not received Everything that we have is a gift of God. It's our joy to participate in God's redeeming work, his kingdom work, by giving to the poor. When I was young, I remember a Christian preacher told me that evangelism was very important because evangelism is the one thing that we will do on earth that we won't do in heaven. Let me add one thing to that list, giving to the poor. There is no poverty in heaven. There, are, there is no poverty in the kingdom of God. And so, as we run towards the God who gives, we remember the poor. 
the very thing that Paul and Barnabas and Titus were eager to do. Are you eager to give? Do you have a generous heart? Remember the generosity of Jesus who gave his life that we might live. Sometimes it feels like we're running to Bermuda in a giant hamster wheel. Sometimes it feels like we're just spinning our wheels. Sometimes it feels like we're running in vain. It doesn't have to be that way. Let me encourage you to run towards God. Run toward the God, towards the God who speaks. Run towards the God who saves. Run towards the God who gives. You'll never run in vain. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your grace, which enables us to run the race that you have set before us. With our heads, thrown, our shoulders thrown back, our heads held high. Lord, may we not run in vain, but may we pursue you even as you pursue us. Hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. At this time, I invite you to 